Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. This is Brian De Palma, and I highly recommend Screen Talk to all those podcasters out there. Welcome to the 100th episode of Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. It's surreal for me even to say that. So I had Brian De Palma start us off this week just because, uh, well, it's kind of crazy and uh, that <laughs> we've been doing this as long as <laughs> we have and that people like Brian De Palma have latched on to us. But, you know, when uh, you and I first started doing this podcast in 2014, I feel like we were just sort of grasping at you know, whatever might seem of interest to people that we find notable at the moment. But what's been fascinating to see is that even though we're in a kind of bubble and we're just talking about things that are of interest for us in our world, there is a whole kind of community of people who are responsive to, you know, the kinds of movies that we like and also the kinds of movies that we disagree on. And that's that's been kind of kind of neat. I mean, why does Brian De Palma listen to Screen Talk? I would like to think that somebody like that relates on some level to the kind of passion that we have for this medium. But maybe you have some insight into that as well. No, that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. I'm, um, I've known, um, you just did a really good interview with him. We should, we should talk about that. Some of the things that, that he said are, are, are rather, I mean, is he retired? Is that, is that the gist of, of what, we're, what you found out talking to him? So I sat down with Brian uh, earlier this week at the Metrograph Theater in New York, which just did this huge retrospective in the run-up to this documentary that Noah Baumbach and Jake Paltrow directed called De Palma. And uh, it's really just him talking through all of these different moments in his career. And I think what's been notable about those different moments is that in, in each stage of De Palma's career, he's been driven by either trying to work within the confines of the studio system or kind of doing his thing outside of it. And at this juncture, 76 years old, he has no need to be driven one way or the other, which means he's not about to go into the studio system, which requires a certain kind of effort and a certain kind of investment that somebody like him doesn't have the kind of ability to navigate. And what he talks about in the interview that I think is really notable is that he doesn't see those possibilities in TV either. He tried to make a Joe Paterno movie as a film with Al Pacino, couldn't get it off the ground. It was going to be an HBO project, and they wanted to put the executives in the room, as he explains it, for the first table reading. And, and he never would allow that. He said in Bonfire of the Vanities they tried to do that, and he kicked the executives out. That was not an option this time. So there's, there's no final cut in TV. And Brian De Palma is a guy who likes to have control over what he's doing at 76 years old or 75, whatever he is. At, he's at a stage of his life where he really doesn't need the BS. And the studio system is filled with BS. I mean, look at the kinds of stuff that's be, be, happening now with the studio movies on the on the franchise front. I mean, Warcraft. Yeah, is we get to see a we get to avoid, in my case, uh, another Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie this weekend. Exactly. 
And I'm, I'm like, I know I shouldn't say this in public, but I mean, I, I want those movies to, to not do well. I, 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 I feel like they're, 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 they're ruining my brain cells if I have to watch them. Well, exactly. I mean, it's like you could, you could argue for all kinds of idiosyncratic kinds of cinematic expressions that are way outside kind of the safety zone of a lot of people. But there's still something to be said for making smart movies on a bigger scale. And once you remove that from the equation, as a lot of studios are doing, and TMNT comes back into the zeitgeist, this, this kind of filmmaking is just has zero redemptive value. That's how I feel, certainly. I'm not going to argue with you about it. Now, a lot of my friends, I mean, especially at this time of year, we're heading into the summer. So, you know, it just starts to look like the options are few and far between. And I'd rather binge on casual Jason Reitman's fabulous Hulu series, which I think is sexy and hilarious and well-written and beautifully directed and everything that I want to say positive uh, about what's good on television these days. And there's a, there's a wide range of stuff, you know, I'm, I'm, you can, you can look at the night manager as, as being a ramp up to, you know, Tom Hiddleston and Suzanne Beer, you know, doing a Bond movie. But, um, you know, uh, what we've learned, by the way, is that in actuality, the, the film, you know, all this speculation about, about Bond. And Bond is a franchise I'm happy to go see every single time because the people who are behind it are invested in keeping it interesting. And they know the character, whether it's played by Daniel Craig or whether he has one more Bond in him or not. Apparently, he has a contract. He is supposed to play Bond one more time. And they want him to play Bond one more time but they're smart enough to recognize that he's burned out exhausted and and will you know ready to do other things for a while until he you know he eventually comes back so whether you're daniel craig or you're brian de palma one of the big picture things that's going on here is that this is a system that beats you down and has an agenda that isn't necessarily on top of or, or on the same wavelength of somebody who actually wants to make something of quality. And this isn't groundbreaking news, but it, it does seem like it's accelerated. It's also worth noting that there is this alternate perspective on where movies are at right now that has nothing to do with studio movies. I mean, we could talk about The Lobster. We could talk about The Which Witch. is a hit, which is great. And The, and the Witch is a, is a hit, too. I'm fascinated by which movies are actually working in the box office and why. I mean, there's so many, like, for example, I am heart sick that Maggie's plan hasn't done better. For example, you know, it no, really I, I hasn't taken forgot, off. I saw that movie in the festival circuit last fall. I even forgot that it was already out in theaters it's, because it's, 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 it hasn't caught fire. It has not. And, and it, it makes me crazy because, you know, this is a really well-written, well-directed, well-acted, entertaining movie for smart moviegoers and you know they should be supporting it it feels like or or, the, or people aren't going to make movies like this and all the women who complain I that there are no the movies for yeah. them uh, it, you know what it actually makes me wonder it makes me wonder if Greta Gerwig is is not you know a draw that's what it makes me wonder because Mistress America didn't do well either She's not. She hasn't sort of plateaued onto that level. I mean, she's certainly not Kristen Stewart or something like that. Who is I mean, a real star? 
Yeah, and I wonder if maybe Brie Larson would be the one who would, who would be obtaining that level, who's come from indie roots on some, on some level. I mean, Maggie's Plan is a small film, and I think there's there's also a conversation to be had about that and whether this is a medium that, uh, because it's not TV, really has to prove its its worth each time out. I mean, Maggie's Plan is good. I think it's a fine movie. Is it I'm just kicking trying to up figure its out why it didn't? I mean, it got great reviews. Right. So why didn't it resonate? I mean, the other one that's doing really well, which is arguably not as good at all, although it's fine for what it is, is Love and Friendship. Love and Friendship is a hit. Why is Love and Friendship taking off, released by Roadside Attractions and Amazon? And why is Sony Pictures Classics, Maggie's Plan, not taking off. That's the question I'm asking. What are the elements that make one a hit and the other one a dud? Well, one of them might be money on some level. We're talking on Amazon, which spends a ton of money, maybe irresponsibly so even, according to some people. But, hey, it seems to be paying off at the box office in this case. Another one might be Jane Austen's got a following on, on you know, as Maggie's on, Plan outside. is an original. That's that, there is an element of that. On some level, people know what they're getting with, with love and friendship, and they know that it's entertaining. Um, but so is Maggie's plan. I, 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 it just, it just befuddles me. Um, I mean, Sony knows how to do the older audience movies. The, you know, the, the movies like uh, Grandma with Lily Tomlin. Yeah. You know? I mean, that's like epitomizes it, right? I right. Mean, but selling movies to old people, especially to a generation that, I'm sorry, isn't going to be around forever, isn't the future of getting people to go to movies. Actually, what was interesting about my conversation with them at Cannes was that they were arguing that it's a replenishing demo. In other words, that as people get older and have more time on their hands, they go to the movies more. And that that's the demo that goes to the movies the most often now, in, at least on the art house front. Um, so it's, 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 they're arguing it's a constantly replenishing demo, and, and so they're not worried about it. But then I'm intrigued by somebody like IFC Films, and we, we spent some time with them kind of talking through how Can went and so forth. And they're, they're doing movies that are pitched to that older audience, but also pitched to people who might watch things at home on VOD. And they're, they're getting them to see movies wherever they can that are not necessarily the easiest selling points. No, and I think, I think that it's encouraging when we worry about how, I mean, one of the things Tom Brueggemann, our box office guy, talks about every week is how hard it is for su- subtitled movies. Uh, to get a purchase at the at the box office, but it was encouraging and reassuring that there's an audience that's finding them online. You know, online. I mean, that's really great. Or on their cable system, that's really good. That's fantastic. Right. That, that, that you can go to IFC on your cable system. There's a place where IFC, in effect, is curating movies for you, and you can go and, and know that they're going to be good, and that there's a brand that you can believe in. That, that to me, is progress. And the funny thing about progress is that it's not something that we can just hold in a jar and examine and just sort of say, you know, this is the next paradigm, the future of entertainment, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it really is the kind of thing where, I mean, at least it's the way I see it. I mean, I, it, it, VOD isn't something that, that, was, that could have been predicted. The way that movies are seen isn't something that you can just sort of create a model for and it just happens. It has to be responsive to the way that people view things. And on some level, it, it seems like, you know, what we're seeing right now is that there's just a diversification in terms of how people relate to content. Right. You know, 
relate to TV in one way, they relate to movies in one way, and they relate to things online in one way, but it, it's all kind of mashed together in, in, in a sense where you can't just create one platform that is just appropriate for one of those media. No, no, no. So. But I, I think it may be news to a lot of people that there's this, that, that, there, that there are what we would call smart house moviegoers who would ordinarily go out who are seeing a lot of movies at home on their cable systems in their fancy living room entertainment setups. And we, I, I just, it, and I, and I think that it isn't just a question of clicking on a, an A movie on a menu and, 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 and looking at titles and not knowing what they are and not recognizing them. It, it's a question of knowing that you can go to a curated site and find that these movies are being recommended to you and that you have reasons to believe that they're going to turn out okay. And they can be subtitled. They can be in a foreign language. This, to me, is heartwarming. (laughs) Well, and and we talked about this earlier, but there was this film, The Red Turtle, which was so great at Cannes this year, and and that has no dialogue and and has no need for subtitles. And so this idea of kind of creating content that stretches across linguistic barriers is something that I think is very exciting as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, what else is going on in our, in our universe? The LA film festival just launched, uh, last night and we were introduced to a sort of new profile for, uh, the LA film festival last year. I mean, it's been evolving slowly under the direction of Stephanie Elaine. Um, but she has a very strong diversity agenda and the movie that they showed last night called low riders, um, which is basically about the car club culture in Los Angeles and stars the great Damien Bashir as the tough dad and uh, a young up-and-coming cast who were very good um, as, as the uh, generation that he's sort of pushing against. Um, it's so a family. It's, or- it's, a, it's, an, uh, it's, it's got great performances. It, it, it's a little bit predictable. Um, uh, I actually found it to be... Uh, I'm one of those people who doesn't always like narration, and so there, 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 was, there was some awkward narration on the movie. It was produced by Imagine, developed by Imagine. It was supposed to be made years ago. A guy who I love, uh, a, a screenwriter named Cheo Hadari Coker, did the first version of it. Now other screenwriters have come on board, and Jason Blum took it over and turned it from a $20 million movie that could never get made to a $5 million movie that could get made that has reasonable grittiness and authenticity to it in a way that a studio movie never would. And I do believe that this is where Jason Blum, you know, does, does know how to make uh, movies for the, for the marketplace that are, that are reasonably priced. You sound very uh, guarded there about lavishing praise on Jason Blum. I think the guy is, in many ways, a gifted producer who has figured out some very good things. He knows how to make horror movies. He knows how to make low-budget movies. He knows how to make movies work in our challenging marketplace. I have a great deal of respect for Jason Blum. Is he a brand that I would uh, um, uh, put uh, as a quality brand, a, a guarantee of a certain level of quality? No, that's not what he does. Well, I guess what, what what troubles me about the kind of, I don't want to say the cult of Jason Blum or just using this person to epitomize a certain model is that 
it's there's so many other people who are making movies with an incredible amount of autonomy and aren't necessarily trying to work through this kind of factory based approach with an output deal like Blum has through a studio. It's sort of like, do you even have to bother with that in the first place? If you can make a movie for say $5 million or something like that, which is, you know, kind of the scale that they they tend to operate on. Well, this is inside the universal family. So this made, this turned out to be a solution for a too expensive Imagine movie, uh, you know, coming out, um, in, you know, I, I, it doesn't. By the way, the, the, its distribution future is by no means secure. I have no idea who's going to end up sell, releasing sell it. The, the theatrical to somebody if Universal right. itself doesn't want to. Well, I think what what is actually notable about what, what you're talking about here too is that it's a it's a minority story that studios don't still don't make enough of. And one of the things that the Los Angeles Film Festival seems to have achieved on some level this year is that a lot of the programming is reflecting that and the panels that they're doing on diversity. And it, it just seems like the, the idea of diversity being a mandate in entertainment is more part of the zeitgeist than it was ever before. That's an interesting question because, you know, uh, under David Anson and Maggie McKay and, and uh, um, Doug Jones, there was a older model quality film festival with international titles and and it was there was a lot of good quality programming and uh what you get with the new uh la film festival is a lot more local uh programming a lot more first-time filmmakers i think it's something like 90 percent that's what the woman who uh one of the programmers uh, Roya Rastegara was telling me last night. Um, and it's, it's like, and of a huge number of women filmmakers also, but these are all, these are all discovery titles. And, and so you have the diversity that you would want and you have these subject matters and you have, um, these new filmmakers, but who are they and how much are you willing, you know, to sort of, uh, sample without knowing anything about it. I mean, it's, it's beyond what they do at Sundance even. I mean, at Sundance, you see, you do see films that are, uh, where filmmakers have, 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 have a few films under their belt. It's, well, it's, there was, I mean, the, I think, and, and it's yeah. also they're giving an award to Ava DuVernay. Check right. that box. They're share, They're having a meet and greet with uh, uh, where um, Ryan Coogler talks about how he did the soundtrack for Creed. Check that box. You know, I mean, I don't know. I I I support it, of course, in so many ways. But I, I'm more interested in the panel they're doing on women cinematographers. That that interests me. A lot. Well, well, I think Creed I mean, is sort of old news. That's the only reason. I, I mean, I love Ryan Coogler. I love Ava DuVernay, but I, I, I almost feel like they're the, they're the star, the go-to stars, you know, right now. Well, you also seem to be suggesting some of it. There's a heavy handedness to to overdoing the diversity card rather than sort of sublimating it into the programming in a constructive way. And, and maybe there are other festivals that are trying to do that. Sundance, for example, didn't necessarily try to overstate the element of diversity in sign-up, but it, it was a very diverse year, and, and uh, a black filmmaker, Nate Parker, won the Grand Jury Prize. There was also a terrific movie called The Fits, which happens to be opening. That's right. Got very good reviews. Great. Young woman director, first feature, and, and basically all black cast. And um, I, I think those those kinds of stories – 
you know, it's not just that it's a diversity element. It's that it's telling a marginalized perspective. It's it's more that this is a story that works no matter who you are, and it just so happens that these kinds of stories are underrepresented by Hollywood, but Hollywood underrepresents all kinds of stuff. So I we're going to find out. We're going to find out where the buzz is already. I'm hearing great things about Painted Black, Amber Tamblyn's uh, directorial debut. So, you know, that's going to be playing tomorrow night, and I'm going to definitely check that out based on the word of mouth. That's what you want. That's what you want. You want to have um, reasons to go see things that, that where, you, where you really are discovering a new talent. Well, is there currency to this festival in the larger picture? Because one of the things that, that I can't quite get a hold of is we come out of Cannes and we're talking about Oscar movies. We're talking about all kinds of different things. That's not happening that, here, no. And I, my, my question would be, do, do these films get picked up? Is there real... They, there's, there's, there, there are sort of numbers thrown around about how many of them are getting acquired, but, but they're not backed up necessarily with real examples. I, I think we need to dig into that a little a little more. I mean, do these movies show and then they just disappear? There's a f- sense of that in a way. It, it, yeah, it does seem that way. And, and it speaks to a, a one, one issue that, that I've heard people flag before, which is that outside of a handful of really big festivals, the idea of a marketplace at a film festival is, is not as much a, a valid idea for the industry as it used to be, that it's, it's sort of a seller's market and the sellers, sellers can show you their movie at AFM they can show you the movie anytime. Do you need to go to the Los Angeles Film Festival in order to make a business decision? Well, you about- do. No, I mean, you have the thing about the Los Angeles. I mean, by the way, the Los Angeles Film Festival has always been sort of a, a, a second tier, you know, festival that hasn't quite. Re- I mean, in some ways, I would argue that the AFI Fest, which has been around a long time, is beautifully, beautifully programmed and is, you know, in a way. Um, much more relevant to the Oscar conversation because of when it, it it happens in November. So it gets a lot of the late breaking movies that haven't made the fall film festival uh, circuit, and they they get their last you know the, the the Clint Eastwood movies and the and and so forth. So it it really is. Um, more relevant in many ways to to that conversation, but the Oscars aren't the the whole the whole caboodle. But but even so, the AFI Fest. When you go to look at at any of the movies they've programmed, there's a there's a sense that you're gonna you're gonna recognize a certain level of quality, even if the films have shown at other festivals before. I'm not sure you get that sense. At it's a, it's a little bit more of a of a of a hodgepodge here at. Uh, at LAFF. Although, to be, be fair, we are in kind of that weird no man's land right now, sort of in between Cannes and the fall season, where uh, the Oscar conversation, the awards conversation kind of levels off. There's right? nothing we happening are, at this time, no, exactly. no. Even no Cannes didn't have that much to offer on the, on the Oscar front this year, really. I mean, it, change, it varies from year to year anyway. That's true. It's and and what it's actually kind of interesting because Loving is a movie that could have been buried in award season and seems to have been the biggest Oscar movie to come out of the festival. Now. There are some I mean, debates it's... though about whether um, what there is some debate about whether Loving really got the lift that it could have from Cannes. Um, in some ways, it was a more mainstream movie than tends to be rewarded at, at Cannes. You know, so it didn't win anything. It it, it 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 got good reviews. It wasn't like people were people who are 
savvy about what plays for Academy voters saw what loving will be, but it didn't play that way necessarily. It can. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't a slam dunk, and in, in, I mean, it didn't erupt onto the festival. Not at all. It was very town. muted, really. But, but it's a very muted movie. That's I mean, the argument. Just... But, but I, I support. I believe that it will, it will go the distance. Um, that 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 the actors, especially, will will recognize uh, the level of of performance that Joel Edgerton and Ruth Negga give us in that film. I believe you called it a soft lob down the middle. I believe I did. <laughs> and it is, it is a soft lob, and for some people also a soft sob, so it'll it'll. It's play a tearjerker, absolutely. So then maybe there's something to that. There is a documentary playing at Los Angeles Film Festival that could be a real award season contender in, in, the, in the nonfiction category, which uh, started off at Sundance called Life Animated. Oh, I agree and with that completely. It, I think that's going to make it. I think that's going to go all the way. Um, I, I, I believe, um, that has, it's very, you know, that it's very hard for, um, documentaries have to meet a very high standard and because there's so many good ones at, you know, they have to really do, uh, really deliver in order to be considered even potentially in the race at all. So uh, I do highly recommend that one. It's it, because it's about an unusual subject. It's about an autistic guy. It actually tracks him from when he's a young man, a, a young boy until through, through his adulthood and how he uh, adapts uh, to movies, how movies help him to to adapt to being a grown-up and being able to navigate life it's very moving it's also it's uh it's got that you know animated movies yeah the bitter the (laughs) disney movies animated disney element going forward it's almost like if finding dory is in the slam dunk then this will be the pixar movie of award season exactly we don't know yet about that one. It's just right around the corner. But uh, it, it is kind of fascinating to me how the award season kind of slowly unfurls in, in, in this the kind of like delicate flower sense. And then it just erupts into firecrackers in September. It's just, it, it's, it's such a meticulously planned thing for so many different people. And yet there, there could be surprises along the way. There could be something lurking on the festival circuit that gets picked up. And then all of a sudden somebody figures out that it's got that hook. It's not going to be Maggie's plan, which we talked about before. I would but, have liked to see that know. one get a screenplay nomination, I guess. But, you know, honestly, if you have a summer movie that doesn't perform, the likelihood that it will survive in any way all the way through to the end of the year in, in some Oscar way is pretty slim. Well, so it, it, it makes sense that Sony picked up all these movies out of uh, can because now if the if you know one doesn't quite go all the way, another one might have a better shot. Whether it's Tony Erdman going for foreign language or the Red Turtle going into the animated category, I mean, it's these guys are, are firing in every direction they can to make sure that they have or uh, Isabelle you know, pair with with L. Um. Right. I can't wait to see how that one plays for, for a and <laughs> It played I can't a lot better at Cannes than I thought it would, honestly. Oh, we're going to have so many great arguments about that one when the time comes. It's, uh, it's, I mean, and that's what's so exciting about it personally. It's, uh, not everybody loved that movie, but the people who do love it have some really fascinating reasons why. And the people who hate it, I think, uh, have some valid arguments as well. You know, it, it, 
the art when it's an open and shut case for something it's kind of boring and the fact that we can keep having the arguments that, that we can have i think is in testament to the fact that any kind of consensus is is always the, the weakest direction so i hope that you know whether we're talking about the awards race where we're talking about the kind of insular festival circuit that we find plenty more reasons to disagree for the next uh, 100 episodes. A 100 episodes of arguing with you, Eric? My pleasure. <laughs> Let's Anytime. make it 1,000. <laughs> right. I'll be in Seattle next week. That's where we dreamed up this whole thing. So um, I think I'm going to see you up there. We'll, we'll convene for our usual panel discussions. See you in Seattle. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.